Welcome back to the program at Harvard Business School, which George W. Bush attended. There are many case studies about business partnerships. One of the recurring themes is that in partnerships, it's tough times that are easy. When everyone is struggling for a common goal, unity is always easier. But when a business starts to succeed, the partnership is always a lot tougher. Political partnerships are different, but still similar. There's no bottom line to worry about, but when one partner starts to succeed politically ahead of the other, usually there's trouble and strain on the relationship. Certainly the Bush-Cheney partnership is no exception. It seems that every modern presidential aspirant, when he picks a vice presidential nominee, says that it's going to be a unique and special partnership. The Bush-Cheney partnership was true to that in some unique ways, and more importantly, on the profound impact that it had on the nation in ways that we will be living with for decades to come. That's why Peter Baker's book about the relationship between Bush and Cheney is so important and so central to understanding the history of the Bush administration. Peter Baker is the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times. He is the author of the bestseller, The Breach, and was one of the principal reporters who covered and truly understood the Clinton impeachment. It is my pleasure to welcome Peter Baker back to this program to talk about his newest book, Days of Fire, Bush and Cheney in the White House. Peter Baker, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. It's always good to talk to you. Great to have you here. We certainly always hear when candidates are running for president and picking a vice president that it's going to be a unique kind of relationship and a unique partnership, and certainly everyone is different. There was something about this relationship, though, with Bush and Cheney that went down into policy in ways that was very different from the personal kind of or administrative kind of relationship we've seen in other administrations. Talk about that. Oh, I think it's absolutely true. You know, look, President Bush, George W. Bush, when he was governor of Texas, uh, he understood his uh, his strengths and weaknesses. He understood that he didn't have uh, any real background in national security, having having run Texas, and he and he reached out to somebody who did, somebody who obviously had great seasoning, had been defense secretary, White House chief of staff, congressman, and Dick Cheney filled an important role. He played an, a reassuring role both to the country and I think even to to, to George W. Bush, especially in those early days. Uh, but what's really interesting in, in, in going back and researching this book, Days of Fire, was to discover sort of the arc of the relationship and how it changes dramatically over time. I think we've had uh, an overly simplified view of this of this partnership uh, that actually, when you peel back the onion, uh, comes to life in a much richer and more interesting way. One of the things that's so unique about the partnership, as you detail it in Days of Fire, is that it's kind of like these intertwined strands of DNA in that the relationship between the individuals and the relationship as it impacted policy really had an arc unto itself. And it was very hard to tell which was the chicken, which was the egg, that in some cases the relationship drove policy, in some cases policy drove the relationship. No, it's a very good point, and and obviously, you know, Dick Cheney had because he was such a master of Washington ways, found ways of moving the process in ways he uh, favored all along, and in, in, in outmaneuvering his rivals inside the administration in those early days and early years, Condi Rice, Colin Powell, and so forth. Um, but you know, the question has always been like, did he actually sort of? Uh, uh, convince Bush to do things he wouldn't have done otherwise. And one of the things that, is, that in doing 270, interviewing 275 people, 400 interviews total for the book, uh, I've never found anybody who, who has said to me that Bush himself believed that Cheney convinced him to do something he didn't want to do. In fact, he was pushing on an open door. He, he definitely uh, was, a, was a powerful force, Cheney was, in his early days. But he was, he was in tune with the president that he was serving. 
And in fact, it's very clear, as you detail it, and as many of these interviews reveal, that Bush gained confidence over time and relied less on Cheney as first among equals. No, that's absolutely true. And and, and uh, you know, Vice President Cheney has talked about this. Uh, I interviewed him twice uh, uh, for the book, and he he you know pretty frankly acknowledges that he was. Uh, he was uh, while he was influential in the first term, he became less so in the second term. By the second term, you know, President Bush uh, faced a war that was going bad in Iraq. The weapons that he had been told weren't there, and he began trying to find ways of pivoting, uh, turning more toward diplomacy and, and and shaving some of the harshest edges off of the policies that had been so controversial in his first term. So he elevates Condoleezza Rice to Secretary of State, and she begins to become the first among equals uh, that uh, Cheney had been in the first term. One of the interesting things about Bush, and it's it's perhaps one of the enigmas still in trying to understand him, is that while there were these changes taking place, one, as he gained more confidence, two, as, as you say, he knocked some of these hard edges off that Cheney represented, that he was never willing to admit from beginning to end that, in fact, he had changed, that policy had changed, that changes had taken place in the administration. No, that's very correct. That's a very good point. He, he, you know, he, if you ask him today, he would say, no, he was consistent all the way through. Uh, but if you ask others, like Condoleezza Rice, she, she acknowledges that there was a, a pivot. She, she says there was a natural one, which she says is, look, we broke a lot of China in that first term. We kind of had to after 9-11. The, 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 the threat was so big, our, 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 we weren't prepared for it. We had to do things quickly and urgently, and, and in process, we might have, uh, you know, offended people and, and, and stepped on some toes. So by the second term, it was a natural evolution, in her view, toward, uh, you know, kind of repairing some of those relationships. But when I asked her about the vice president, she said he would have liked to have continued breaking China, in her view, in the second term. And that's where they began to really uh, part ways, Bush and Cheney. It's interesting, too, to see how Bush tried to handle this transition. He talks in his second inaugural, and you, you talk about this, about this democracy agenda, which was really just kinder and gentler way of dealing with the neocons. Well, he did sort of ad- adopt a, a central tenet of the neoconservative idealism, which is this notion not just of a real politique national security policy that cared about our interests, but actually promoted a, this, this greater ideal, the notion of democracy, freedom around the world. Uh, you know, some found it invigorating, some found it uh, overly uh, simplistic or messianic, but what's really interesting about it is that the president uh, decides to go this direction without even really consulting with the vice president. The vice president wasn't involved much in the drafting of that inaugural address, and you begin to see in that sort of the way the second term is going to be different than the first. In talking about change, one of the things that's so interesting about Cheney is the way in which 9-11 impacted him. Clearly, he was always the proverbial bull in the china shop and, as you say, wanted to keep breaking dishes. But it does seem that the events of 9-11 somehow had a more profound impact on Cheney. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that... uh you know, there are those who speculate that it changed him in some way, those who knew him for a long time, like Brent Scowcroft and, and so on. I think uh, probably a little bit more interesting way of looking at it is that, you know, he had spent the, 90, uh, the 80s when he was in Congress participating in these continuity of government exercises where every year he would be spirited off to some remote location and pretend to be a White House chief of staff in the apocalyptic uh, scenario of a nuclear war and what would they do to reconstitute the government. And he'd always been interested in what he called bugs and gas, chemical weapons and biological weapons, and he found that uh, 
that the intelligence they received after the Gulf War in 1991 was that Saddam Hussein was actually much more uh, further along in some of these programs, even nuclear programs, than they had known. So by the time 9-11 happens, this is where the culmination of things he's been thinking about and dwelling on and living to some extent for years and years and years. And it, and it kind of reinforces in him a very dark view of the world, a world that is filled with threats and, and, and that can't be... Uh, uh, allowed to sort of fester without sort of uh, taking them on in a forthright way. How much of Cheney's gravitas from the very beginning comes from the fear that he generated and the sheer force of that kind of Darth Vader-esque personality? <laughs> I think so. Look, you know, the people were in the White House were, were intimidated by him simply partly because he was quiet. He actually was not sort of a bombastic type. You know, he actually sat in these meetings, and people would notice that he didn't really actually say anything. And they'd walk out thinking, you know, he was kind of a black box to them. But they noticed that when they did walk out, he stayed. And he had the power of being one-on-one with the president, and they understood that power. So there was sort of this, uh, you know, very, and, his, and he had a very powerful and, and, and sometimes intimidating staff as well that played an outside role in the White House. That, again, begins to change by the second term, but in particular on the first term, you know, that's the apex of his influence. Whether Cheney wanted to be vice president or not is, of course, an open question, and whether he positioned it in order to get Bush to ask him is, is another open question. What is your sense of the policy ideas and the policy primary objectives that he had when he came into the White House? Well, I think, I think Vice President Cheney was obviously more interested in national security, but he did uh, he did have some domestic interests, too. Energy was one. He had been, of course, president and CEO of Halliburton, an energy services company. That uh, So he had a you know personal stake and interest in, in those kinds of policies. Uh, he was interested in the economic issues, the tax cuts that the, vice, that the president was uh, advocating. He wasn't so interested in issues like education, Medicare, uh, those kinds of things, uh, you know, immigration. Those were not his bailiwick. He didn't really ever get involved in them, even later when the president made them a priority. So... You know, he found his lanes, and he, and, and he stuck to his lanes, and that's how he husbanded his interest and his influence. He would tell aides, look, the aides would come to him and say, well, we're really upset about this policy or that policy. And if it wasn't something that the vice president cared much about, he said, look, you're welcome to go fight that battle if you want, but don't cite me in this. I, you know, he, in effect, he was husbanding his, his uh, chance for the things he really cared about. Because it's interesting when Bush first picks him as vice president, and he reminds Bush, he says, you don't realize that, that I'm conservative. And Bush says, yeah, I know you're conservative. And she says, no, no, you don't understand. Very conservative. Right, right. And it's an interesting moment, right? And I think that's also one of the misconceptions people had about Cheney. Cheney is such a low-key, uh, calm uh, personality, right? So when he goes, he's very good on, on Meet the Press and these television shows and had been for years. And so people, I think, sort of mistook this sort of low-key, moderate demeanor for, therefore, a moderate politics. They assumed he was, he was in fact, sort of center-right rather than right-right. And as, as any look at his record would tell you that's not really the case. Even in the Ford White House, way back when, he had been fighting with, uh, with Kissinger over detente and helped uh, oust Nelson Rockefeller from the ticket uh, in 1976. He tried to push Ford into appointing, to putting uh, Reagan on the ticket in 1976, in fact, all the way through his career in Congress when he cast a lot of very conservative votes, and, and he was conservative even under Bush 41. But the difference was he was working for more moderate presidents, and so people perceived him in that context. Was Condi Rice's policy impact in the second term every bit as strong as Cheney's in the first term? That's a good question. I think uh, that's a, probably a good way of looking at it, sure. Um, and, but the relationship was different, and this is this helped her, I think, in a way 
that uh, that ultimately Ch- Cheney was not well served. I mean, if you ask Bush and Cheney what their relationship is, it's not really one of like friendship per se, not what we consider to be friendship. Uh, Cheney told me so we were not buddies. You know, they didn't socialize at Camp David or exchange birthday gifts or get together very often with the wives or go fishing and so forth. That's not really the nature of the relationship. Condi Rice, by contrast, was a personal friend of the president. She had she went over to the residence for dinner on Sunday nights with the president and the first lady. She worked out with the president. They talked sports. She, they went to Camp David together. So she had a different kind of relationship that gave her, in the second term, uh, in some ways even more influence than uh, Cheney had had in the first, even if she wasn't quite as you know, mastering of the process that he had been. It's interesting, though, that we talk about the influence of Cheney, particularly as it relates to foreign policy, and yet we don't look as profoundly, as deeply, at the influence Condi Rice had. And maybe history will change that. Well, I think that's right. And, you know, what uh, what, what Cheney's uh, people around him would say is, look, you know, she had free reign, in, in effect, in the second term. And how did that work out? It didn't work out any better than the first, in the sense that Iran and, Iran and North Korea still had nuclear programs by the end. There's still no progress, really, in Middle East peace. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that she had advocated, that she had made uh, top priorities for her second term, didn't go any better with the, the more diplomatic approach than they had with the more bellicose, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, robust or what have you approach that the Cheney uh, folks would have preferred. So, you know, they, they look at that as, uh, as proof in their view that they were right and that uh, the president was wrong to kind of get away from his first principles. How much did the president understand initially about what the public perception was as as Dick Cheney as kind of puppet master? And did he care about that perception? I think they they were concerned about that uh, around the president. They were very sensitive about that, in fact. Even in the early days, uh, Vice President Cheney's uh, press secretary suggested that he should do like weekly background sessions for reporters, even without his name uh, attached. And that sort of set up a lot of flares in the White House, and they they quickly rejected that. They, they they deeply resented anything that looked like the vice president was the guy running the show. And ultimately, even the president began to, uh, to bristle at that. You know, when he, when the vice president comes to him in 2003 and says, look, if you want to go with somebody else for the ticket in 2004, I'll be happy to step aside. President Bush eventually does think about it. He spent several weeks, he says, thinking about it. came up with a replacement possibility, Senator Bill Frist. And the reason he said in his own memoir was, he said one reason is it, w- it would show people who was really in charge. Well, that tells you something, doesn't it? That tells you that he was sensitive to this notion that somehow he wasn't. One of the other aspects that's so interesting is that all the crises that kept falling upon the administration in many ways, made the president stronger and gave him the confidence, it seems, in many respects, to deal with Cheney in a different way, particularly in the second term. I I think that's right. I think, look, the longer you're on the job, the longer you, you know, the more comfortable you feel, more confident in your own judgments you feel. He he didn't feel like he needed... uh, uh, Cheney the way uh, in second term the way he did in the first. How do you look? How do you know that? Well, uh, look at two moments. Uh, the, the March 2003, the intelligence people come to him, CIA, and say, "Look, we think we can get a bead on where Saddam Hussein is. Let's go ahead and start the war now with a strike and try to get him." Right? Uh, President Bush hears everybody out and then kicks everybody else out of the room other than Cheney. He just wants to talk in the end to Cheney, and walks out of that meeting with Cheney. Says, okay, go for it. Three years, four years later, he's uh, he's presented with new intelligence saying Syria has a secret nuclear facility, and the Israelis want you to bomb it because it's a it's a threat to them. Vice uh, President Bush again is a meeting also all of his advisors, and this time instead of kicking everybody out and talking to Cheney, 
he asks Cheney to give his position there in front of everybody else. Cheney says he thinks we, that they ought to bomb it. The president says, okay, who, who all here agrees? And no hands go up. So not only is he you know, no longer first among equals, the president is sort of forcing him to confront his own isolation within this team uh, in front of everybody. The other aspect that seems to be Cheney's Achilles heel in this is while he understood infighting really well and he understood the politics inside the administration, inside the Beltway, he seemed to have more or less a tin ear in terms of the broader political consequences of all of this. And that's where the president seemed to trump him at every turn. Yeah, you know, he um, he, he came in as what – he was the rare bird, came in as vice president without – an ambition to become president. You know, almost every pre- vice president going back for 70, 80 years had at least, you know, harbored this uh, this desire. Most of them actually did run. Uh, and so it changed the dynamic. And so his point of view was, I don't care if I'm popular. It doesn't matter to me what the polls are because I, I can serve my, I can serve George Bush better by uh, just giving him my full advice. But eventually his own people came around to the idea that that, that may be good in some ways. There's something sort of principled in some ways about that, you know, caring less about the winds of, or fickle winds of popularity. But on the other hand, if you are so indifferent to what the public thinks, you're not building support for the kinds of things you care about, and therefore uh, that's ultimately going to undermine them. And finally, talk about what clearly was the final breach in the Bush-Cheney relationship, Bush's refusal to pardon Scooter Libby. Yeah, I know exactly. This is, this is, as you say, the final breach. It comes after a few years of frustration for Vice President Cheney. He's been on the, on the other side of the president on so many issues, not just foreign issues, but even domestic issues, climate change, gay rights, gun rights, the auto bailout. And he goes to the president and he says, look, my chief of staff, uh, Scooter Libby, was wrongfully convicted in his view. Uh, it was a political prosecution, as the vice president saw it, for, in the CIA leak case. He'd been convicted of perjury and obstruction of justice. And he asked the president, he said, you got to pardon this guy. You can't let them... Uh, ruin a good man's reputation. And Bush thought about it. He sent his own. He sent the White House lawyers to go look at the case again. They met with Libby at a seafood restaurant near the White House. They came back. The president said, "No, we you know we think the jury was you know had ample justification for this verdict." And so the president said, "No." And it was this sort of this uh, seminal moment where it kind of all comes to a head. And the vice president in their their lunch says to him, "You're leaving a good man wounded on the field of battle," which is probably the harshest thing he ever said, knowing that would that would particularly hurtful to, to, to or harmful to or, or, you know what's the right word for, for for Bush who cared a lot about loyalty so it was that was the way the presidency uh, ended in fact on the inauguration day of Barack Obama Bush gets in the car with Obama heads to the Capitol for the swearing-in ceremony the last piece of advice he gives him is whatever you do set a pardon policy from the beginning and stick to it on his mind as he's leaving office is this rift with the vice president Peter Baker the book is days of fire Bush and Cheney in the White House Peter, it's always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Hey, thank you so much for your interest. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.